The following is brought to you by the generous support of Clio. On April 24, 2018, Joseph James D'Angelo, also known as the Golden State Killer, was arrested for murders and rapes he committed for over a decade from the 1970s into the 80s. It's one of the most famous examples of DNA evidence convicting someone of a crime, especially for those of us that live in California. All in all, he is believed to have committed 10 murders and 50 rapes before going dormant in 1986, and he probably would have gotten away with it without DNA evidence linking him to those crimes committed decades ago. Although the first patent for DNA evidence being used in forensics was filed by American biologist Jeffrey Glassberg in 1983, the first known murder conviction from that science would not take place until 1987 in the United Kingdom, when it was used to arrest and later convict British murderer and rapist Colin Pitchfork. Since that time, it has rapidly spread across the world as a gold standard for law enforcement evidence. Not since fingerprints first came onto the scene in the 1890s has there been such a breakthrough for forensic science. Even more amazing than its ability to catch murderers and rapists decades after their offenses is the hope DNA evidence gives to people falsely convicted of crimes they didn't commit. I'm Michael Simanchik, managing attorney for the California Innocence Project, and this is DNA Evidence. Spent most of my life in prison Chasing a dream called justice Chasing a dream, chasing a dream Won't somebody please hear my plea Won't somebody please set me free DNA evidence has been part of American law enforcement since its first conviction of Florida rapist Tommy Lee Andrews in 1987. Soon after, it would catch its first American serial killer, as Timothy Wilson Spencer, also known as the Southside Strangler, would stand trial on July 11, 1988. Ironically, that first serial killer conviction from DNA would lead to its first American exoneration of David Vasquez on January 4, 1989. DNA evidence is the foundation for innocence organizations around the world. That's because innocence organizations not only have to believe in their clients' innocence, they must also prove it. And DNA often helps us do exactly that. Furthermore, DNA's accuracy in making identifications has uncovered flaws with other forensic disciplines along the way. Contrary to how it's represented in pop culture, DNA has not always been a slam dunk for forensics. There have been reliability issues over the years as science evolved. In the early days, DNA testing required a lot of genetic material to develop a full profile. Since then, detection abilities have greatly improved, but now there is the problem of overreporting. Because the tests are incredibly sensitive, they are detecting DNA profiles that have nothing to do with the underlying crime. But before we get into that, we should review the history of DNA and its evolution to establish a foundation of understanding. To do that, I invited John Butler for an interview. John is an author and internationally recognized expert in forensic DNA analysis. He currently works for the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Here's our conversation about the history of DNA. So DNA testing was developed by Alec Jeffries. He is a geneticist that was at the University of Leicester in England, central England. In 1984, he developed the first DNA. Uh, at that time, he called it DNA fingerprint, a genetic fingerprint. 
Uh, DNA typing is what we call it today because the process is a little bit different than what was done originally. But at that time, it was a technique called the Restriction Fragment Length Polymorphism, RFLP. And that method enabled the testing of DNA, looking at variation between people and looking how these genetic variants could be transmitted over generations. And so he was able to, Alex Jeffries was able to use this for an immigration case early on in the UK. It was used for paternity testing, of course, and then it moved into the criminal justice system. There was a case in Narborough, England. That's what the story of the blooding is all about. And there was a young girl killed in 1983 and another young girl killed in 1986. And they realized these crimes were probably connected. So Alec Jeffries was just right down the road from there. His university was close by. So they were able to then take the DNA testing methods that he had developed and use that in this case. And eventually, the Colin Pitchfork, who's the person that was, had committed the crimes, was caught. But 5,000 people were asked to donate blood, which is probably something they wouldn't do as easily in the United States. But at that time, they asked uh, villagers, men from 18 to 45 or so, I think, that were asked to give their blood to screen out who would be uh, innocent. And so they made that connection. That investigation was done with this mass DNA dragnet, if you will, early on. But the most interesting thing to me is there was someone who actually confessed to the second crime. His name was Richard Buckland. His DNA profile was not connected to the crime scene. So the very first use of DNA was actually for innocence, to demonstrate that someone could be excluded from the crime scene sample, not included. And so that, I think, is very interesting to look at the early history that the exclusion of an individual and helping verify that, that he was not involved in that crime was very important to him for his release from prison. What was the testing like at the time? I mean, I know you said RFLP, but what did it constitute? I mean, how much genetic material did you need? And what did that testing look like? So RFLP requires a lot of DNA, typically hundreds of nanograms of DNA, which hundreds of times more DNA than what we would use today for testing. The reason is, is that you're using directly from blood or from semen or, or whatever body fluid is being tested. You're trying to do a direct test without any kind of amplification procedure or copying procedure, which is used today. So at the same time that Alex Jeffrey developed the DNA testing methods, the RFLP methods, at the same time, in the United States, PCR was being developed, the polymerase chain reaction. And the first paper on that was published in 1985, the same year that Alec Jeffries publishes first papers on DNA fingerprinting or DNA testing. So you have this, both these, these methods being developed simultaneously. The amplification technique, PCR enables you to copy and make many, many copies of the DNA. So it's much more sensitive. You can target a specific region, and that enables you then to then copy and use that material to be able to study it uh, more carefully. So it improves the sensitivity. So back to the issue of oversensitivity. One issue with today's DNA testing is that it finds too many profiles. Just because someone's DNA is on an object does not make them guilty of a crime. For example, a person manufacturing a knife might leave their DNA on it. A murderer buys that same knife from a store, leaving their DNA on it too. So how do investigators know whose DNA belongs to the killer? Current DNA testing does not calculate for time, and so we don't know who last touched an object. This leaves quite a puzzle for investigators to figure out. Making matters more complicated, a person's DNA can end up on an object even when they never touched it. This happens frequently through secondary transfers. A classic example of a secondary transfer is when people shake hands. DNA can be transferred from one person to another and then later deposited onto an object. So imagine giving your friend a high five, and they later buy a venti mocha cookie crumble frappuccino. 
your DNA can end up on their coffee cup, even though you would never drink such a monstrosity. This natural occurrence really complicates investigations. Whose DNA is relevant? Who is the criminal versus an innocent party? When you're dealing with a close circle of people, those distinctions are critical and very difficult to sift through. So how does law enforcement keep relevant profiles in and the non-relevant profiles out? For that, investigators need to look at a variety of factors. For example, is that object close enough to be reasonably considered part of the crime scene? Who are the people close to the victim? Is there an underlying motive behind the crime? Questions like these help investigators focus on DNA profiles that matter. DNA testing by itself does not solve the crime. It needs context. A successful investigation will be able to parse out the relevance. But that's only if the investigation knows what to look for in the first place. Historically, this may not have been the case. Deanna Lankford is the director of forensic casework at Bodhi Technology, a company that specializes in identifications using state-of-the-art DNA technologies. I talked with her about crime scenes and objects that are likely to yield proper DNA evidence and how investigators connect that to probable suspects. So in terms of other pieces of evidence, things that you look for at a crime scene, let's say you just get crime scene photos and you're trying to determine, you know, what would be important to test. What are you looking for? So it depends on the crime, but let's say, you know, a victim was left uh, having been maybe sexually assaulted and murdered and... Um, let's say it's a female and she still has on clothing, we would like to see kind of how that clothing has been left or placed. So maybe we can see where the assailant maybe pushed up a shirt. So we would know we would need to look in a certain area. Or if the clothing was removed, we would know that it would be important to test those items. Yeah, photos can tell us so many different things about, you know, where a good area to test would be. There's a lot of talk these days about touch DNA, and I've, I've sat through some lectures about, you know, people debating whether or not touch DNA is actually a thing, whether I'm, I'm shedding the skin cells off my, my fingers or I'm collecting epithelial cells and spreading those around. What do you think right. it is? Well, I mean, I think we go back to Locard's principle, uh, and that is, you know, anytime you, basically anytime you make contact with something, you're leaving behind some material and you're taking away some material. So I think um, we definitely leave touch DNA behind. So depending on what your definition is, I know that, you know, when I hold my ink pen, I'm leaving my DNA behind, my skin cells, and, you know, it's very possible you'll obtain my DNA profile if you test my pen. So when you're looking at a crime scene too, maybe you're looking at like discarded beverages or cans or cigarette butts maybe, is that? Those are my favorite. Those okay. are absolutely some of my favorites because when your mouth comes into contact with a drinking cup, you're leaving behind not only skin cells from your lips, but you have the, the saliva from your mouth. And so it's a great transport media to leave cells behind on your cup, on your Diet Coke can or your beer bottle. And cigarette butts specifically, I think, are wonderful because they act as sponges. So if someone sticks that cigarette butt in their mouth, that spongy portion, the filter is touching their lips, their tongue, their teeth. And it's just, it's a wonderful little sample that people leave behind when they do bad things. (laughs) (laughs) All you bad people out there, quit smoking. That's right. (laughs) So once you do the testing and you come up with some sort of result, what happens next, typically? Well, when you get that result from from that cigarette butt that was left behind at, at the scene, um, you're going to compare that to um, known 
DNA samples that have been obtained from your, maybe your victim, maybe your suspect, maybe some innocent bystanders, witnesses, you're going to make comparisons to determine the source of that DNA profile. And so what if it's just an unknown assailant, you have no knowns, are there any other options? If you don't have a a match per se to that DNA profile and it's associated with a crime in which law enforcement agency, for instance, wants that uploaded into the national database, CODIS, they will contact their local or their state crime lab and ask for that to be uploaded into the national database. And then it's uploaded and searched against the um, millions of offender profiles. So just a quick note about CODIS before we return to Deanna. If you listen to true crime podcasts, you already know what this is. But for people who don't, CODIS is the Combined DNA Index System. It's a cooperative DNA tracking project between local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies. Most simply put, it's a database of known DNA profiles, and it's used to identify genetic material found at crime scenes or from unidentified bodies. When a DNA sample is recovered, it's sent to a lab to be examined for genetic markers. Those genetic markers are then shared with CODIS to see if there is a match. Although every state participates in CODIS, it is managed by the FBI. It should be mentioned that not everyone feels the same about it. Some challenge CODIS on constitutional grounds, and different states place different limitations on it. In some states, you have to be convicted of certain types of felonies before your genetic identifiers can be shared, whereas in others, the requirements are far more lax. All that said, when a crime is committed or a body found, recovered DNA is sent to CODIS to see if an offender or missing person has been identified. Regardless of constitutional challenges, CODIS is a powerful tool for making identifications from genetic material. All right, with all that CODIS splaining mumbo-jumbo out of the way, let's return to Deanna. It's it's uploaded and searched against the um, millions of offender profiles. And so that's, would you say that's pretty common that that's happening? Oh, it's very common. So CODIS is comprised of two things then. It's two components. It's both offenders as well as case profiles that haven't matched to a particular offender as of yet. Exactly. And I believe they also have the missing persons portion of that as well. So you could upload and, and it could just match to another case or you could upload and it, and it matches to a, a person that's you know in custody or, or has previously been in custody and maybe is out now. Yes, absolutely. Interesting. So as far as when you're doing the testing, has there ever been a situation where you've got some result that maybe implicates an innocent person? In other words, like you do testing and and their DNA is there because it's supposed to be there? Oh, sure. Um, You mentioned sexual assault kits earlier. There are many times we test sexual assault kits and we end up with a, a male profile. So a DNA profile foreign to the victim. And it could be from her consensual partner. So far, we've heard about objects likely to contain DNA, as well as using CODIS to reveal known matches. But let's return to the issue of oversensitivity. How do investigators navigate the bombardment of information? How can they be sure a known DNA profile is the guilty party? Probably the best answer is context. Where was the DNA sample found? Was it found on the body? And if so, where? Was it found on clothing? If so, what article of clothing? Does the DNA profile match someone close to the victim? If so, was the relationship a happy one? Successfully working through factors like these is an investigatory art. So when you're looking at a case, 
how do you avoid bringing in irrelevant evidence or evidence that, you know, really probably isn't going to help you identify who the, the true perpetrator was? How do you sort that stuff out? Like you can't just send a whole box of evidence and say, just go and go ahead and test. Cause you right. might end up testing like 10,000 different areas on a, you know, I mean, like if you sent 10 pieces of clothes, I mean, a pair of jeans could have any number of areas that you might want to test on. And if you don't know where to test, right, you don't know where to test. So how do you focus on the relevant stuff and eliminate the irrelevant stuff so you make sure you get what you need and you, you're not kind of overwhelmed by, you know, irrelevant samples? Absolutely. So in cases where we have the cigarette butt from the crime scene, that's that's super simple. The investigator is going to want to know who was smoking that cigarette who left that cigarette butt behind at the crime scene. So we automatically know, although we'll confirm, that that's what they want to know. So we're going to take a cutting or a swabbing of that cigarette butt from the mouth end, from the end that would have been put into the mouth of the the individual, and we'll take that cutting. Uh, We'll confirm that with the client to make sure that's what they're looking for, but we don't need a whole case scenario there. You, You don't need to tell me that it was a murder or a burglary just to test that that cigarette butt. Uh, in the cases that you mentioned where you are submitting a box of clothing, that's when it's more important to have that conversation of what happened in this case. Is it a sexual assault? Is it a homicide? Whose clothes did these belong to? What are we looking for? Are we looking for semen stains from a perpetrator? Are we looking to see who these, these clothes belong to? Was this a T-shirt that was left behind at a robbery? Many times we find that in robberies and burglaries. For some reason, the assailant, I don't know if they get hot or what, but they take off their ball caps, they take off their shirts, and they leave them behind. You know, if that's what we need to determine, then we're going to take, you know, cuttings and swabbings or scrapings from the armpit areas or around the neck of the shirt. So we need to have these conversations ahead of time so that we don't test a pair of socks that mean absolutely nothing to the crime. Right. And usually is it the investigator that tells you or the party that's submitting the evidence that tells you where to test or what to test? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's generally the submitting client. And I say investigator just because, you know, probably 90% of our work comes in from crime labs or law enforcement. And then the other 10%, 10 to 15% would be from attorneys. Fortunately, as technology developed, investigators became more sophisticated Today's law enforcement can much better handle sensitive DNA testing, and so there is less risk of implicating innocent parties. But between those early days of DNA forensics and today, there were a lot of things missed during investigations that could have meant all the difference to those serving life sentences for crimes they didn't commit. Since innocence work focuses backwards in time, it's good to discuss the old way of doing things. What did investigators focus on in the past? What did they routinely miss? One major difference today are the efforts investigators take to avoid contaminating a crime scene. Before the era of modern forensics, crime scenes were not as secure. Irrelevant artifacts could be inadvertently introduced by the investigators themselves. Also troubling was overlooked critical evidence. We'll never know how much, but it's probable a lot of exonerating information was left unnoticed. But perhaps the most frustrating part is how much evidence has been discarded, or allowed to denigrate over the years. For the wrongfully incarcerated, every single item could be the key to their freedom. Fortunately for the lucky few, there were investigators who were good at preserving the crime scene and its evidence, 
even if they didn't comprehend the future value of doing so. Here's more from Deanna about common pieces of evidence likely to contain DNA evidence that perhaps not everyone knows about. We've tested so many half-eaten sandwiches and candy bars. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's the other thing about burglars and folks that, that rob, you know, home invasions and houses. They will go in and eat your food and and drink your drinks, and they always leave half-eaten sandwiches and pizza pieces behind. And so we just, yeah, we swap those pieces of pizza, those half-eaten sandwiches and candy bars, the forks that they leave behind when they eat your pie. Oh, my God. (laughs) That's awesome. And these days, um, you know, in the past year, masks, people are leaving behind their masks, which, as you can imagine, is a great piece of evidence because it's constantly rubbing behind your ears, on your face. You're talking through it. You're spitting on it. It's a great little item of evidence. So if you see something sitting on the counter that wasn't there when you left for the evening, the investigator needs to collect that evidence and submit it. That could be a half-eaten piece of pizza. It can be a half a sandwich, half a candy bar they left behind, and those those drinks that they take out of the refrigerator and and leave. Uh, they'll drink out of your two-liter bottles. So we swab those and, and test those, and that's that's helped solve many cases. So looking back over the years, over the last 25 years, what you knew at the time in in the mid to late 90s was that it required a big sample. If you could go back to 1995 and tell all of your investigators some stuff, what would you tell investigators back in 95? Would you, you know, in terms of like preserving evidence and crime scene investigations? Never throw away your evidence. (laughs) May hold on to that evidence. You know, we've seen cases that have gone on to exonerate people uh, after so many years. Do not throw away your evidence. It needs to be maintained. Retain it. <laughs> I always, I think it's so interesting because we, we talk about that a lot. Like, oh, in 95, you know, if we just would have known. But we're in the same boat today, right? Like, we don't know what we don't know. What if, like, testing is even better or... It like, will be. It will oh, be better. It, right. it will be better. There's always, you know, the next generation of test. There's always the next generation equipment. Everything just gets better. The latest, greatest, newest is forensic genealogy. So I have just learned that you don't know what's going to happen in five years, but it's going to be amazing. Right. It's going to be some new cutting edge. I, I mean, you know, you ask what what would I tell the investigators back in 1996? You know, what what would I tell them? I would say, don't give up on your case. I would love to go back and retest every case that I've ever tested. There are cases where I have reported results uh, that were either no results or inconclusive because there wasn't enough DNA. And if that was in 1996, the game has changed. It's it's not the giant bloodstains that you need anymore. You just need a few skin cells. So I would love to go back and retest every case I've ever tested. One of the things that you'll hear a lot more about on this show is chain of custody. Chain of custody is critical to exonerations. Without it, we would never be able to use old evidence to prove innocence. Why is that? Well, in order for evidence to be deemed legally trustworthy, it must be gathered and stored in approved ways. These preservation of evidence laws can differ from place to place, but essentially they must be followed if you wish to use evidence for legal actions, like a conviction or an exoneration. The chain of custody is part of these evidence preservation laws, and unfortunately, it's had a history of breaking down after convictions. 
So what does that mean? Well, it means that there is a lot of time and effort spent to preserve evidence pre-conviction. And then once that conviction happens, the powers that be do not make the same investment afterwards. That is why evidence has gone missing or deteriorated. And like we mentioned before, that missing evidence could be the key to someone's freedom. Here's more from Deanna discussing the problems with chain of custody. Well, a chain of custody generally begins at the scene of a crime when evidence is collected. You need to always know where that evidence was or who it was with and when it changed hands. So ideally, if you have this investigator that collects this cigarette butt from the crime scene and they put it into a brown paper bag and they seal it with evidence tape so that it is obvious if it's been tampered with or deteriorated in any way, uh, they would log that onto some type of either paperwork um, back in the day. These days, it can be done electronically. But you need to be able to look and see from the time that evidence was collected uh, where it was maintained and how it was handled. So that investigator is going to take it to his evidence department and log it in with the evidence custodian. He's going to sign that evidence over to that evidence custodian. The evidence custodian will sign saying that it was received and where it was stored until it's picked up by a DNA analyst. For example, that DNA analyst is going to sign it out and say, I'm storing it in my possession in the laboratory, in my personal locker. And then the disposition of that evidence at the very end should show where it ended up, um, you know, back at the evidence department at that crime lab or that law enforcement agency, and eventually or potentially into a courtroom. And all of the purposes just to make sure that we know who's come in contact with the evidence and who's maintained it the entire way. Absolutely. You want to feel confident that it hasn't been tampered with or handled by anyone who had no need to be handling that evidence. But what does that mean for the innocent people convicted decades ago, before investigators knew what to look for when it came to DNA evidence? The answer is probably nothing, but sometimes there's hope. And that's what we'll talk about next time when we discuss Uriah Courtney's case. He was falsely convicted of kidnapping and rape. While serving his life sentence for those crimes, DNA evidence came to the rescue, proving that he could not have been the perpetrator. But as we'll see, it was a tough battle to simply get the evidence reviewed. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Produced and written by Lawrence Coletti. Audio engineering by Adam Lockwood. Thank you to Clio for their support of the California Innocence Project and the CIP podcast. Special contribution of music and sound elements by real-life exoneree William Michael Dillon. You can find his catalog of work at frameddillon.com. That's framed, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, I'm your host, Michael Samanchik, and you've been listening to the California Innocence Project podcast here on Legal Talk Network. Every month, the California Innocence Project receives thousands of handwritten letters from those seeking justice for wrongful convictions. The impact of these injustices can be life-altering, and without the right technology in place, CIP cannot help all those in need. That's why the team relies on Clio's case management software. By logging these letters into Clio, the CIP team can work on hundreds of matters at any given time and investigate these cases all the way through to exoneration. 
Clio works tirelessly with organizations like CIP to transform the legal experience for all. Visit Clio.com to learn how they support law firms big and small in creating equitable and just outcomes. That's C-L-I-O dot com.